That's out near Hollister and Gilroy. Um, just to keep you uh, keep you informed, I want to keep you updated. Seven-day forecast is currently 64 degrees here at the KSEO station. Most of cloudy skies tonight. We're looking at the weather is going to be pretty much uh, about the same here for the next six, seven days. Mostly sunny skies. We'll be touching 80s high. Mostly cloudy at night. Lows into the 60s for you boaters. No major advisory this evening. Nothing for me to issue for tomorrow. And with that said, it's time for Aaron Clouden and Healing Journeys. I hope you enjoy the show. Opinions expressed in the following sponsored program are not necessarily those of KSCO Radio, its staff, management, or advertisers. If something is said with which you disagree, please call us during the program in order to help us balance comments. Welcome to Healing Journeys. I am your host, Aaron Cloudon, and tonight on the show, I have Sarah Hill, an end-of-life doula out of the East Bay. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing so well, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so let's let's just kind of jump right in, and if you could tell us what an end-of-life doula is and what inspired you to become one. Yeah, Sure. So an end-of-life doula is a non-medical professional who attends the dying time for people that they're connected with. Uh, we support the people who are dying as well as their constellation of caregivers and loved ones. The best way to describe the work that I do is to bear witness to the process, offer gentle guidance where I can, and just stay present through whatever emerges. Okay, and, and what inspired you to do that? Like, what in, what in your life happened that was like, hey, I'm going to help people die and help the people around <laughs> them go through the death process, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, you can imagine I'm the fun one at the cocktail party, right? You know? Um, uh, right. <laughs> uh, needless to say... <laughs> So you got me with that uh, one. <laughs> that's right. You know, either people lean in and want to know more, or they kind of say, hey, I think I see someone I, I haven't talked to for a while. It's like the Grim Reaper just appeared behind me. Right. Yeah. Um, gosh. So, it's you know, it was a journey for me. It wasn't necessarily apparent right away, but I think the primary event of my life that probably contributed to my ability to stay present through dying and death was the loss of my mom at the age of four. Okay. Um, and it wasn't so much her actual dying um, that, that kind of made that connection for me. It was that through my childhood, uh, when folks would find out that my mom had died, I could see the various reactions that people had, whether a fear or discomfort or... Uh, people would be in a rush to kind of throw a euphemism at me. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, nobody could stay really present for that very real reality of my life. Right. And so I think it informs for me an understanding that, gosh, you know, we've got a bit of a problem, all of us, that not one of us, as everybody says, you know, at some point or another in their life, none of us are getting out of this alive, right? Yeah. Um, so I felt that we were really setting up this kind of strange tension with something that is just true. Right. Um, so, gosh, I had a whole other career happening, Erin. <laughs> um, but at various points throughout my life, there were just little moments that kept saying, you know, hey, this is work you need to be doing. I just didn't know in what capacity. Right. I didn't know um, how to lean into the kind of desire to be connected to it. I knew that I didn't want to be a medical practitioner per se, a doctor or a nurse. That didn't really call to me um, or some of the other paths that may have seemed more apparent for folks mm -hmm. in terms of the work of working with the dying. Um, but yeah, here I am. Uh, in my 40s, and uh, <laughs> death doula came knocking for me. Interesting. Yeah, it, one of the things that came up when kind of researching this topic after talking to you originally, well, mm -hmm. and, I, and I just got to say, it was interesting because I don't, 
I, I have like zero fear of my own death. But mm -hmm. when I thought about others dying and some of the folks that I've lost throughout the course of my life, then that's more of when the kind of melancholy or feeling space that I can't even describe would arise. Yes. Do, do you know Absolutely. what I mean? That's that's more of where I was, where I was at a bit of a loss, and it kind of brought me to a question of, like, what has happened? What do you think, at least, has happened in our society where even the need for a death doula even exists? Mm -hmm. You know, like, why mm -hmm. why is this like? We're so we hear all the numbers of how many people have died from COVID or have died in Afghanistan or have died in the latest mass shooting or whatever, but there's kind of sure. a disconnect in regards to mm -hmm. like the dying process. It seems like am I, am I missing something here? I, like no, <laughs> you're not missing anything at all, and it's something that I have contemplated often. Um, you know, leading into becoming a doula, once I've now been acting as a doula, what is happening for us? And there, I think, are probably a number of different root causes or factors or influences as to why the role of the death doula is emerging. Mm -hmm. um, you know, from the very pragmatic side of things, um, you know, we're really looking at death becoming something that we're going to have to contend with in large scale mm -hmm. with what's called the silver wave, right? We're going to have a number of people dying in the not-so-distant future, and the way that we have kind of packaged death and delivered it to our medical community, right, for, for them to kind of manage on our behalf, mm -hmm. they are not going to be able to... Uh, gosh, meet that need in in a full way from the standpoint of we're not seeing doctors, for instance, in school right now who are specializing in gerontology and elder care and so on and so forth. Um, but anyway, there are a number of different things that I think are kind of getting people, um, you know, thinking about, gosh, how do we meet this time of our lives in a differentiated way? Mm -hmm. um, but COVID kind of forced it into all of our faces. Um, and then, of course, the very public murder of George Floyd had had another reckoning uh, to contend with. And I think it really um, opened up the need for coming into contact with something that we want to avoid. Right. I think that it's very particular to our culture too. U.S. culture tends to be very connected to living and life and youth and vivaciousness and, um, you know, really is in a state of relative death denial. Yeah, um, I, I guess that's kind I, of what came yeah. up. I, that that it seemed interesting, at least kind of what you're saying. That it seemed like we kind of almost hide away the elderly yeah. or the infirmed is so as to maintain this illusion of youth and beauty and all these things we go about and it, it it's weird there's like there's like uh i don't really see any constructive dialogue about death it seems to be sensationalized mm -hmm. and desensitized yeah. And desensitized and dehumanized. And there's a process of defamiliarization that occurs through that. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting when I first start working with my clients and their loved ones uh, that I have to explain to them, I, I'm not a medical, medically trained professional. And I'm not saying that solely from the standpoint of skill set, but also that I didn't go through the extensive training that enables me to keep a level head and say a surgical procedure. I'm a connected emotional being who stays present in that state through this experience. So it's not a mental model that many of us hold. And I find that I more often than not am modeling for people what it is to stay present and connected through dying and death, we've just become so afraid of it. And it's become so unfamiliar 
and something that we just don't see. And when we lock it away from ourselves, it just sets us up to be in a state of disconnection. Uh, I think we see that in a lot of places. Right. So is the family kind of like looking to you to learn how to deal with something that should be, from my perspective, should be familiar? I I mean, is it because of the nuclear family that we've kind of gotten to this point? Ah, that's a great question. I think, I, gosh, Aaron, you and I could <laughs> pull so many various threads. Sorry, this, I'm I think there's super a big curious part as to, no, to the why. I, I, I can't I, help right, but... Right, let's get there. Well, like, why? The, as mm-hmm. much as I love what you do, and I think you even said to me, I'd like to do my job so well that I don't need to do my job in 30 that's right. years. Right? <laughs> that's right. And I'm exactly. like, and so that stuck with me. I'm like, yeah, why yeah. Why is this necessary? That's right. That's right. Because I that is my aim, right? I want folks to reclaim what is our kind of collective birthright, our own death, right? Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that is we do have an intuitive wisdom. We do know how to do this and i find that well in the beginning of an engagement with my clients there may be a heavy reliance at looking to me on how to do something Mm -hmm. right over time as we continue to um, explore together and get curious together throughout that process what i'm able to do is affirm for them their own internal wisdom on how to do this Right on. Um, the dying process itself and supporting loved ones who are dying. Uh, I, there's never hardly a case where it's isolated to one individual. So even within the confines of, say, the nuclear family structure, there's still connectedness within family. What I think we lack at times is a sense of community, mm-hmm. of a uh, connectedness where our elders are able to show us how it's done, right? We don't have that in the way that we're, we're set up today. And so I feel a gap that, frankly, I think has evolved just from the way that we have decided to live our Western lives. Mm. Right. It's interesting that you bring up the elders because there is a certain... Uh, I've no, I do a lot of community and kind of things that would be... I guess people would call alternative, but I consider to be more genuine. And there is a, it seems to be a return to the respect of the wisdom of those who say have just lived longer, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and that return to community and, and the not hiding away that, that all beings have a value and a wisdom. So it, it seems like you're, intentionally bringing that back how how do people even know to get a hold of you or do many people know about death doulas it's so funny i honestly didn't even know about death doulas Mm -hmm. Um, back to your original question about how i found it it Mm -hmm. was really uh an experience where i happened to be at the birth of um, the daughter of a really dear friend of mine who had asked me to be there and I had asked her why she wanted to be there. And she said, I, I just feel that you're going to know what to do here. <laughs> I said, okay, sure. I'll show up. And really that's a big part of the work, right? To just show up. So in that process, there was something so familiar about that um, experience. And I, having given birth myself to my son, I had had a birth doula. And anyhow, while I was with my friend, I started to realize, gosh, there's something familiar about this work, but I got it. It's like a big light bulb went off inside my mind. I was like, I need to be on the other end of the life spectrum. Um, I'm here to help people die. And I went home and typed in death doula in a search engine because it was the closest approximation I could come up with. Mm -hmm. And boom, suddenly there it was. And I was enrolled in training uh, within a matter of two months. How people find me, I just don't know. I think a lot of it has been just conversations that people are having. Mm-hmm. They'll have come across a TED Talk, or uh, that's how one client found me, that a friend of the, their mother was dying, and 
And their friend said, have you heard of these death doulas? <laughs> Send her a TED Talk. Mm-hmm. And that's how she found us. Um, and that's something I should say about doulas, too, that we model community also. You know, even though I support clients as a private practitioner, I never do it alone. I always have a community of other doulas around me to do this work. Okay. It's very fluid that way. And organic in its own right it just kind of emerges there's no mastering it there's no controlling it that's Mm. not how you you meet this work and it's just so counter to the way many of us you know manage walking through our lives it's certainly how how i used to show up in my former profession right i've had to in many ways unlearn a lot of that and show up with child's mind and be curious and lean into the experience and be intuitively responsive. Right. So, uh, so with so with that intuition, do you have certain ceremonies or certain, I guess, the, like anything else, the more you do it, the more you have, uh, I would say, possibly go-to techniques or anything in regards mm. to helping those that are dying as well as those around them? I think what we try to do is avoid any formula, per se, mm-hmm. uh, but just just as you were saying, Aaron, there are certain things that we do find are useful for many of us, or rather universal. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I try to do is understand my client's lives as quickly as I can alongside them, the essence of, of a life. Mm-hmm. What is important to them? What are those kind of staccato punctuated moments that stand out, the good, the bad, the in-between? How do they tell their own story so that I can help reflect it back to them in a meaningful way? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I integrate that into ritual. Uh, and ritual sounds heavy-handed. I don't know that mm-hmm. that term fully expresses what it is but for instance i had one client who absolutely loved roses and had a beautiful rose garden and that garden bloomed like no other season right before her death Mm -hmm. and we had fresh roses surrounding her at all times we did uh, with her adult children a bit of a ceremony of washing hands with uh water that had been where roses had been steeped rose petals had been steeped in that water and then went and brought those petals to their mother as she was dying when she did die we made sure rose petals were integrated into how we laid her out after cleaning and washing her body so that's a really minor one but it's something that for instance we would maybe do but trying to personalize it, got it. Do for other people, but trying to personalize it and make it unique to that individual, okay. In a way that helps them feel familiar with it, if you will. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. That that reminds me of. Uh, I, I'd love it if you'd kind of told that story you told me once before. You said you were talking about a song that went through your head and you played it for oh. like six hours yeah. straight or something and then that's right it's sure. kind of it kind of borders along the okay. mystical but i'd love to hear that story mm. again if, yeah. if you don't mind sharing it no i'm i'm happy to share these stories yeah they're synchronicities and they happen all the time and i just had one the other day aaron i don't it's so interesting and fascinating and i marvel at it when it happens and yeah i'm i'm growing I will never not have gratitude for it, but I'm growing accustomed to it happening. So That's it makes me feel cool. Feel, <laughs> Gives me chills like when I'm you connected. say it. <laughs> yeah. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, I do too. So the story that I had shared with you and will share with the listeners. Um, so I do have my own practice um, of sitting before I meet with a family and trying to connect in with the dying person. I may have some biographical information, what may be happening for them disease-wise and other things that that come through an intake form of some kind, but I haven't really met them yet. Uh, I dedicate, though, a good 
hour to maybe more where I have it to really just try to sit and prepare myself for being open and meeting with them. So there was one day with this one gentleman who, um, yeah, he, I was going to be meeting with him uh, the next day, he and his wife. And gosh, we, yeah, so I had a good three hours <laughs> to sit. And I decided to turn on, you know, Spotify and listen to some music. And uh, Neil Young popped up. And I love Neil. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't say he's my go-to, though. <laughs> right. And so Neil pops up and Harvest Moon starts playing the song. And I, it just felt so right and so good. It was, you know, when you get that, like, it just, it's just that scratch of song just mm -hmm. so right. So I put it on repeat. Uh, and it didn't just play a couple times. No, no, no. <laughs> Three hours later, I'm still listening to Harvest Moon. So anyhow, the next day, I go to meet this man and his wife of many, many years. They had met in elementary school. They were both in their, I, I believe, mid-60s. Mm -hmm. uh, very bonded, very connected. He had uh, ALS and was unable to verbalize you know, to, couldn't talk so much, mm -hmm. hushed tones, a bit of a whisper, and often would turn to his wife to ask her to speak on his behalf. And so I was there with another doula, and we were talking to them just about what, when his, when active dying began for him, what would be soothing and pleasant in, in his surrounds. Uh, oftentimes, you know, some people like candles or soft music or a certain scent uh, in the room. There are things we can do to try to really bring a sense of calm and ease. And so we asked, it, my co-doula said, do you have any music that you're particularly fond of? And the man looked at his wife and they had a knowing exchange between them and she smiled and said, yes, in fact, we do. Our song is Harvest Moon by Neil Young. I love that story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, and I kind of nearly fell off the chair a little. It was right. really uncanny. And my co-doula, this is the beauty of it, she saw it. Out of the corner of her eye, she saw me do something. It was subtle enough that nobody else noticed in the room. And then we, when we got in the car afterwards, she's like, what was that about? And I shared with her, and she just grinned, and she said, of course. <laughs> you know, of course it was. Yeah. That's super and cool. And so we did get to play it for him. Yeah. And then we played it for his wife uh, in the moment after he died as well. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. Do you, do you find, and, I, and this might be kind of a hard question to answer, that people are more willing to accept death with a death duel there than as opposed to from what you've heard when they're not? Do, I mean, do you find people fight? Because I, I, I've heard stories of people like fighting death, mm -hmm. e e you know, even mm -hmm. on, on their way out. Mm -hmm. I, I don't even kind of know how to articulate the question properly, but is that a big part of your job is just helping the dying person accept and let go in a more graceful manner? Yes, and. Mm. Uh, and the and there, and it's just a curious question I have, too, Aaron. I don't know for sure. Right. Um, but I'm going to flip it slightly, too, because one of the things I have noticed, and this is something I'm finding myself getting more and more curious about, um, is not only am I working with people to help meet their dying and death with a <sighs> hopefully a different sense of equanimity and completion, mm -hmm. right? To be able to to go into it with an um, open heart, open mind. Uh, but there's another component to it as well, which is the experience that we bear witness to if someone's dying. And I find that because we've brought it behind the veil, if you will, um when people are confronted with watching someone they love die, it can be a very traumatizing experience for them. Mm -hmm. Even if what is happening is very normal. Uh, so 
also there may be signs of agitation that can crop up for some people that may be a physiological response to what's happening in their bodies. And I think our interpretation of what might be happening might vary slightly from the actual experience the dying person is having. So I think it's an interesting transition point for me that I'm still navigating myself as someone who's focusing on the dying person mm-hmm. and their experience and what leads up to it and as they're going through it and then also shift then needing to shift to really catch their loved ones who are bearing witness to the process and how to support them and frankly prepare them even upstream too um you know, death is a beautiful thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's always easy and straightforward. Mm-hmm. Very similar in a way to um, a mother giving birth, right? right. Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I don't want, I think one of the things I, I want to get better at myself is I continue to hone my own craft, if you will, mm-hmm. is how to explain to people that I hold the beauty of death, but it is complex and it, and it may challenge us right. and that that's okay too. Right. Uh, um, as somebody who had to absorb a number of euphemisms, as I said, once my mom <laughs> had died, I certainly don't want to fall in that camp. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. You know, when you were talking about that, it brought up a lot of stuff because I first heard about death doulas in the in the early to mid 90s because I was working doing in-home support for people with AIDS at the time. And um, at that time, you know, the AIDS epidemic was only about 10 years in and there was still some mystery around it and a lot still a lot of fear. And, you know, I was up in, in Northern California, Mendocino County, and they were, there was a lot of talk about death because we were some of the few people that were interacting with some of these guys. And, and some of them, you know, some of them originally from the Midwest, their family, like, had disowned them, and there were some sad cases. But some of the stories I heard, and I don't know if this was true, was that if the loved ones told the person dying that it's okay for them to die, that they didn't need Mm -hmm. to live for the loved ones left behind, Mm -hmm. that they would be, uh, that they would actually pass, or even just leaving the room, that it was very common for people to die once people had left the room, or that it was very common for people to die after, like, a big anniversary or after a big holiday like Christmas or New Year's. Is that true, or was that uh, yeah. uh, okay? Yes, <laughs> that's true. So the, the typical day or time of day, from what I understand, for death is around 11 a.m. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me why. <laughs> um, but, yes, certain big milestone events happening, you know, say, uh, say there's going to be a wedding in the family or... Uh, a milestone birthday or uh, birth of some somebody, uh, you know, yes, absolutely. People, I do believe, have agency mm-hmm. if it's a non-trauma death, right? Let's be clear on that, too. Okay. That's, a, that's another, another situation. But there is a degree of agency around timing. Um, and I do believe, you're right, I think letting loved ones who are dying know that you're going to miss them like crazy, but you're okay with them going is absolutely a loving thing to do mm-hmm. and can provide peace of mind and support. Um, so I'm trying to think in terms of, you know, for, and first let me just back it up too. I got so excited answering the, answering what you were saying. I forgot to say thank you so much for doing the work that you did and oh. for bearing witness to yeah, that their was, lives. That was, that I mean, was, that's huge. Yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting. It's funny. I just kind of fell into it, and I was in my early mm-hmm. 20s at the time, and I didn't mm-hmm. really, I didn't think twice about it, you know. There was a need there, mm-hmm. and I was available, and it was, yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird because yeah. I hadn't really thought of it until this show c- came up, and I was like, because 
you know, I, I was thinking of show ideas, and I was like, oh, Death Duel. And then it brought back this thing from almost 30 years ago, and being one of the last people left in their lives, and, and I was one of those guys who was getting them uh, marijuana at the time, which was still illegal, in yeah. order to help with, you know, being able to have appetite and stuff like that. You know, there was no dispensaries <laughs> at that time. Sure. And uh, let's just say I knew people in the black market <laughs> rather <laughs> intimately. <laughs> and so I could help in that way also, you know, mm -hmm. besides like mm -hmm. being the person who would do, or even just be the person who sit there. And some of the stories were so heartbreaking. It was so, yeah. I mean, literally people just laying in bed and them telling you, oh, I'm like, well, where are your parents? And, and I'm, I'll never forget this one guy who was originally from Iowa. He's like, oh, my parents are still alive. They're in Iowa. They haven't talked to me in 20 years. I'm like, well, do they know you're dying? He's like, oh yeah, they know. They they they'll have nothing to do. It was heartbreaking. I was, it it's makes me sad now. Right. Talking about it, I'm like, oh my god, I uh, I can't ima I can't imagine my son would ever, no matter what he did, I would I would never let him die alone. I, yeah. Uh, sorry, I went on a little rant there, but it, it, it no, I, I got I a huge that. feeling space when talking about this because it 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 yeah. never. It never left me, you know. Here we are, thirty years later, and I and I tell that story, and it's it makes me want to cry. <laughs> I just can't imagine leaving anyone to die alone, let alone your own no. child. It's no, it uh, I, no, I can't. I no. <laughs> I think it flies in the face of our instinct. Honestly, that's not. It's devastating. Uh, at least, I don't know. That's how I feel about it. I, it, it would take a lot of <laughs> machination to, yeah, to do that. I don't know how that occurs either. Yeah, there's um, there's language not suitable for radio with the, what that brings up sure. for me. <laughs> I, I just, bet. I, I bet. I can't. No. No. Sorry, I got well, way off topic. <laughs> no, 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 no. But you know what it is here? I'm going to take us right back to what, what's most important, though. And this is what I really, when I, what I'm affirming for people throughout the process is love. Right. It's about love. Right. It always comes back to love. And I know that may sound simple, and in many ways it is, but it's, it's pretty profound. Mm -hmm. the, the the love and compassion and the opening that we can do to one another, to ourselves, um, through this experience is everything. And I hear you for for parents or any other people in someone's life to miss out on that. Gosh, that that's a degree of self imposed depravity that I would wish on no one. Right. It's interesting because it kind of brings up a question for me in regards to you. Have you dealt with parents, you know, having children? Done? Have you done your work with people whose child is dying, who's been diagnosed with a, a end of life disease or illness? I have not. I have not yet worked with a young child, mm -hmm. but I have worked with a, an adult child. Mm -hmm. Yes. in the family and how that impacts the parents. And I, I don't know if you ever saw uh, Six Feet Under. You know, um, I know a really of it, great, but I haven't really show. watched it much. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. See, I should have known I was meant to be a death doula watching Six Feet Under, <laughs> which you can, you can guess at the topic of the show. But <laughs> right. there was one, one time where one of the characters said, you know, we have a name for... Uh, our spouse who dies, you know, or the person left behind as a widow or a widower, or for a child whose parent dies, they're an orphan. But we don't have a word in our language for a parent who loses a child because that's just too awful to mm -hmm. contemplate. Uh, you know, and I have um, not had the privilege of being alongside a child navigating their dying time you know i imagine it will happen at some point in my time as a doula and i'm open to it um right. you know death death comes when it comes and in certain ways you know meeting it with with a sense of okay how can we make this be what it is uh, as heartbreaking as it is, how can we 
you know, honor this life, no matter how long it was, no matter what direction it went in, you know, what is it that we can honor about this life? Um, and I would welcome an opportunity to do that and to support support a family going through that experience. But yes, I know it's um, it's tough to even imagine. Right. Uh, but you know, there's one thing I did want to share too, and you know, just in terms of um, one's dying time and whether there's agency there or not. And it's a kind of fun thing that I think everybody should know about. And when I learned about it, I was pretty excited. But I know we hear about these stories of people right before they're dying, um, potentially seeing a deceased relative, or um, they might um, suddenly see a pet, for instance, that had died uh, before they did. I don't know if you know about this, but there have been extensive studies around what's called nearing death awareness. And it can be as simple as somebody who's, who's approaching their dying time talking about wanting to take a trip or that they're going to be late and they need to pack their bags or that they need to go jump on a bus or on a train or that they're going to be late to their reunion is another one. Hmm. Um, and I have to say that, I have seen that, witnessed it in pretty much all instances, some degree of connection with this concept of excitement around uh, some kind of journey or a reunion or a reconnecting with someone that um, had died and is, is someone they're hoping to get connected to again. So. It's, you know, there's a process that occurs, and I would say, you know, this nearing death awareness, as it's called, has been studied rather extensively. And, mm-hmm. you know, you hear a lot of stories in which people might be, um, you know, bear witness to this. And, oh, my goodness, what's happening? My mother's having, you know, these hallucinations. And sometimes, sure, you know, it, it might be coming from um, heavy medication or a number of other factors. But mm-hmm. there's something very specific about the nearing death awareness phenomena where it's um, not done in a way, it's not out of fear. It's not coming from a place of disorientation. Mm-hmm. It's actually a place of utter clarity and um, calm and ease. So, and so yeah do, do you have do you have people on the other side of that coin who are are afraid of this solo journey they're about to take because let's face it we all we all mm-hmm. we all leave alone we come in alone mm-hmm. we, i mean i guess we don't come in alone we come in with mom yeah. <laughs> mom's yeah. there to be you know lend a helping hand of course <laughs> and uh but when we go we 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 go alone you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i, I kind of bring and is there ever also like the regret about how they've lived their life and and if so how do you help them with that like what are some of the ways i know you say you use your intuition but yeah what what is it that you kind of do to make help them transition more peacefully i meet people where they are Mm -hmm. Hmm. i think it's the most important part Mm um i meet people where they are and i have had people who have died with with great fear um, and uh, even anger. Mm-hmm. I have seen it. And I think what I do is I even affirm that experience. It's their experience. I don't rob them of that. I think, you know, in certain cases, it could be really traumatizing in its own right to try to, how do I say it, detach somebody from the actual experience that they're having. Mm-hmm. Um, so in some regard, what I do is I I will show up and I'll say, yes, this is not, you know, for instance, I did have somebody who, um, who had elected to do the End of Life Option Act, um, which is, legal in our state since Mm -hmm. 2016 in which somebody has been given a prognosis of less than six months to live and they can decide to um, end end their lives with by taking this uh, lethal dose of medication Mm -hmm. and I 
had a client that I was working with who she had a disease that came, it was kind of sudden onset and it was very aggressive and she had a limited window if she was going to do the end of life option act um, by which she would be able to self-administer her, her body at some point may have failed her and she wouldn't have been able to do it. Mm-hmm. So she felt really pushed between a rock and a hard place. She was committed to this decision of hers, but absolutely had fear about what, what was going to take place. And she had a lot of anger at feeling shortchanged on time um, because of, of the disease and it's the nature of it uh, moving her just so quickly. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, I didn't try to change that for her. Mm-hmm. I did perhaps, invite her to transmute it in a way mm-hmm. um, to be able to integrate the experience perhaps in a different way. I think it would be fair to say with this person too, I got the sense that, you know, there was a fair amount of trauma informing what was happening for her in this moment. Um, so there are ways in which you can't always undo you know, a lifetime of learning Mm -hmm. in these final moments. But what you can do is not step away and to affirm the person to bear witness to their experience and to love them anyway. Right. And and do you help the the rest of the family to, you know, also meet them where they're at as well? I mean, do you you Mm -hmm. encounter family members who are maybe... Uh, dad was such a horrible person. You know, I can't believe I'm even here. Are you dealing with that? Or mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, I'm just curious, mm-hmm. you know, if you're dealing with, you know, family dynamics can be really yeah, trippy, <laughs> even when people aren't sure. dying. Can't imagine like when it's going down. So I'm curious how, you know, what your role is with that as well. I mean, it seems like you're bouncing mm-hmm. so much as I, the more I have this conversation and think about it. I think, thanks, Aaron. Yeah, <laughs> you you get it. You get it. <laughs> That's I, <laughs> a lot, girl. I'm like, damn, girl, are you pulling that yeah. off? Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, yes to all of that because that's what it is, right? This work is so nuanced, and as I said, there are it's a it's a constellation, right? And it's moving and connecting and disconnecting, and there are a lot of different. Mm-hmm. personalities that could be surrounding the dying person with a lot of different motivation attached to it. It can get really complex. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing I can say um, that I've learned is that my role as a doula mm-hmm. is to to stay grounded, to not get spun up, to not amplify an already difficult time. Mm-hmm. But you're right, the dynamics that exist within a family system or even friend groups, right? You know, the, we're, we're people relating to one another and it really just kind of, uh, death just amplifies that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, those things kind of just become sharper, if you will. But I look for opportunities where I can intervene mm-hmm. in a in a gentle and compassionate way sometimes firmly mm-hmm. i know how to be firm when i need to be <laughs> right, right? <laughs> yeah i guess um, you would have to right you got no choice yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah i know how to um how to take a moment but the thing here here's another this is maybe a interesting story i had been um, brought in to a family system mm-hmm. and i remember at some point it was a man who was dying his adult daughter had pulled me aside and said, you know, my dad's wife, who, whom, you know, they had married later in her life, so she she didn't have much of a connection to her to begin with, but mm-hmm. she said she, she could be kind of unpredictable, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really might lose, lose it if she does or says anything mm-hmm. inappropriate. And, um, you know, as her father was dying, uh, there were a number of people in the room and we were there, including his wife and his wife turned and said, well, is he just going to die now? Is he, you know, and it just, you, it was really her, she just was 
it was her inside voice coming outside, right? right. And it just, it, it kind of wrecked the moment for some folks. And I just found myself putting my arm right around her and escorting her out. And she just kind of was saying whatever was kind of going through her mind at the time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I sat with her, first of all, kind of contained the space. And mm-hmm. I had another doula there who was able to stay present with a dying man and the other remaining family members. And I took this woman aside, come to find out she had, um, gosh, the grief from her first husband that that she had never integrated, that she had never worked through and it was coming back up and she was being re-traumatized by, by this experience that she hadn't come to terms or peace with. And so we were able to go through an integration of some kind in that very moment. Uh, so, yeah, so safe containers and staying grounded and knowing who needs what in a moment and how to address that and hopefully support it. And, again, that that kind of curiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, if I had judged that woman in that moment, because mm-hmm. let me tell you, her outburst seemed <laughs> relatively inappropriate. Right. <laughs> But if I had judged it in that moment, I would have done a disservice to her, to everyone there. Um, instead, I was able to just kind of stay curious and sort out what was happening for her. And it turned out to be a beautiful experience, I think. So so it kind of brought up a question, too, for me in regards to all this. And, and I want to articulate this question where it doesn't come off as judgmental or, or douchey in any way. Okay, but, sure. <laughs> um, who, it, it, it almost seems like a death doula is a bit of a luxury to be able to have somebody come in and help in this situation. So I, I guess my question is For kind sure. of like, what is the socioeconomic structure of the people who are able to bring in a death doula in, in this, yeah. this type of situation? And maybe I'm reading it wrong because I don't know anything about it, but it almost seemed like this is like wow, how nice is that? Can Who does do this? I mean, who is able right. to afford this type of service? Yeah, and I think it's a great question to ask, and I think it's a conversation that's really been um, a, a kind of primary focus, uh, in a, especially over the last year of, gosh, what did, you know, this concept of having a good death, isn't that nice for those of you who can, right? Mm-hmm. Um and it, I, I think it's a very important question to ask. And I would would say that it's true that most of the people that probably uh, know about end-of-life doulas or death doulas or are able to find us or have the kind of um, bandwidth to do that, right, right. do tend to um, have a degree of privilege attached to that. And I think one of the things that um, many doulas do, including me, Mm-hmm. Uh, is we definitely work on what we consider a sliding scale and right. then also um, do a fair amount of volunteer work, too. Okay. Uh, for families who are really in need, I wouldn't want to see if somebody were open to and interested in uh, the support of a doula that they would be denied based on a financial limitation. Mm-hmm. And I can say that for most of the doulas, I know that's, that's pretty much what I've seen. Right. Um, but, I w- yeah, yeah. I wasn't trying at all to be judgmental about it. I, I was just curious no, as question. I was researching yeah. it. I was like, I mean, this should be available for everyone, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And obviously it's there's only question. so many of you to go around as it is and then to mm-hmm. afford it because you have to live as well. And that kind of brought me right. to the other thing of... I mean, it seems like there's a lot of energy in, in the death process, especially when there's a lot of family members or other, you know, mm-hmm. loved ones around. Like, what is it you do in regards to your own support network as well as how does that affect your relationship with your own life? You know, do you live more fully as well as mm-hmm. the interaction with your own family? Yeah. Sorry, there was like three questions in there. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think I caught I caught them all though because they're all connected. Right. And it, um, it's a question I'm still not sure I have a fully crisp answer to. You know, I mm-hmm. I think that there are certain boundaries I put in place for myself uh, uh, when it comes to self care, especially after death has occurred. Mm-hmm. As I said, I don't remove myself in the way. 
um, say, maybe not saying that doctors aren't affected and aren't compassionate people, because of course they are, but, um, you know, they have specific training, nurses too, to allow themselves to kind of withstand some of the kind of emotional uh, ebbs and flows that come, come with losing patients. But for me, it is such intimate work, the doula work, that there is connection. And I find that after uh, a client of mine has died, I typically clear my schedule the next day if I can. I try not to take on too heavy of a client load, right, where I don't have some degree to maneuver my schedule a bit. So Mm -hmm. self-care is a huge part of this. Um, I have a very loving family that helps who are fully supportive of of what I'm doing and allow me to um, just kind of have my moments of quiet and reflection. Mm-hmm. I've got really awesome friends. Um, I've got a really cool dog. <laughs> <laughs> right um, you know, there's so many different little things, but I think what it is more often than not, um, it's just that the love exchange, because really that's what it is, mm-hmm. fills me up so much that even though there is grief that I carry connected to this, it is so worth it because of the love I feel, right? right? That I know that I helped a family, typically, you know, a family um, show up mm-hmm. in the best possible way, in a way that they can be proud of and that they were able to meet a time in their life that could have been chaotic or could have been, you know, fracturing in a dissociated dissociated way, right? Right. I help them to arrive in an integrated, whole com- way, hopefully with a degree of completion to it. Right. Um, and that fills me up. That really fills me up. So um, I know that sounds kind of interesting, but it's not, it's not the type of thing that depletes me. I, I have yet to have that experience of compassion fatigue. Right. I mean, so basically what you're saying is you're doing what you do is you living your life calling, which then is rewarding enough and and you have an awareness enough to take that alone time when needed. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's so there's a level of irony into that, but also it sounds super rewarding. Exactly. And it's it, exactly. And I'm not, like I said, terribly crisp yet at trying to express it through right. outside of myself. But it really is. Um, I think you helped me do it. Thanks, Erin. You articulated it pretty well. But yeah, it feels, <laughs> I feel like I'm in a better state of flow. And that is the gift that keeps on giving. And as far as it helping to bring into view my own mortality um, and my own ability to really lead my life with a degree of heightened appreciation and gratitude absolutely it does that absolutely it does that for me well yeah i thank you so much sarah for coming on and i will definitely continue the conversation with you uh outside of the radio i I do want to plug your website real quick so east bay doula for the dying.com uh is sarah's particular website and I'm sure she could help you find a doula in your area if you need it. Is there anything you want to say while my music plays real quick? Nothing oh. more than thank you so much, and everybody go out and lead really good lives. Awesome, Sarah. <laughs> much love, girl. Thank you so much. All right. You too. Thanks, Aaron. Have a great night. You too. Bye now. Bye. Bye.